chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Reading from verse 14 and following. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled. Some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come among you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. When a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he will take from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus, by his words and by his actions, often revealed to men that we live, in a sense, in a parallel world, the visible and the invisible, the material and the spiritual an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. And wherever Jesus went, these two worlds clashed. Confrontation was inevitable. The darkness couldn't stand the light. The earthly recoiled at the heavenly. And in this such one incident we have just read, I believe that it brings us some invaluable insights into these two realms of which we have got to contend with. Jesus had just delivered a man from demon possession. His enemies, which were the religious crowd, scribes and the Pharisees, said that he was in league with the devil, with Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, Lord of the dunghill it means, and that uh, he cast out demons with the power of the devil. And Jesus showed the absurdity of that by saying, well, a kingdom divided itself cannot stand. And also, well, if I do that, then through whom do your sons cast them out? And so he just immediately dismissed their argument. But it really is verse 21 and 22 that intrigues me, where it talks about the strong man and the stronger man. The strong man obviously being Satan, the stronger man obviously being Christ. Glad it didn't say the strong man and the strong man. There's a, there's a teaching today, and it's in movies and everything, that, that this world is controlled by two equal opposing forces, <laughs> yin and yang, <laughs> dark and light. And, and one time one's working, another time the other working, but it says a strong man and a stronger man. And there's a big difference between those two stances. Satan is a strong man. 1 Peter 5 and 8 describes him as a roaring, going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so he is a powerful, malevolent, supernatural creature. 
And the little letter to Jude, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael was the warring angel, one of the great archangels. And yet he was very, he was very, wise in how he handled his conversation with the evil one, with the devil. The Lord rebuke you, he said. In Ephesians, Paul writes, and he talks about the hosts of darkness that are at his command. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice here there's a command structure there's a hierarchy within that dark kingdom ruled by Satan himself all the way down to his minions, to his imps. But nonetheless, there's great hosts of darkness. In this story, Jesus said he is fully armed. Philip's translation says he's armed to the teeth. And he has many weapons at his disposal to attack men. First of all, there's the power of deception. In 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9, you don't need to turn to this. It talks about the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so there's a strong deception that he can put abroad. Jesus called him the father of lies. He said he was a liar from the beginning. The Apostle Paul again in 2 Corinthians 4 calls him the mind blinder, the one who blinds the minds of those who believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine on them. He blinds people to the truth. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of men and women because otherwise the enemy blinds. In Revelation chapter 20, we even see in verse 1, it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. So after these things, he must be released for a little while. He has the power and the ability to deceive whole nations. And today we see whole nations that are against Christ and against the Bible. North Korea has imprisoned people for having a Bible in their hotel room. That's the power of the enemy to deceive, and to blind. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so deception is a powerful 
tool in his armory. Then you have the power of temptation. This is as old as the Garden of Eden, is it not? Was not the very first thing he used, temptation? And by it, Eve was deceived and Adam fell. Even Jesus, the enemy came to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ himself with those three temptations. And John, in his first epistle, chapter 2, he talks, and he talks about three things, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Think of that in relation to the three temptations that Jesus faced from the enemy in the wilderness. The lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, it says, and afterwards he hungered. Anybody knows that if you're on a protracted fast for a reasonable length of time, that's fine when you're on it. But once you come off it, that's when your appetite returns. And it comes back with a vengeance. And it did with the Son of God. And so at that moment when he thought he was at his weakest, he says, turn these stones into bread. Look at those little round stones. They look like little baps. Turn them into bread. The lusts of the flesh. The lusts of the eyes. Took them up to a high mountain. Showed them all the kingdoms of the world. Let him see all the kingdoms of the world. As far as he could see, the eye could see. Seen all the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes. The eye gate is a powerful thing for temptation, isn't it? The eye gate. By what we see. The pride of life. Took him up to the pinnacle, probably in the temple. Said, throw yourself off. What better time to announce your ministry to awaiting people? What a miracle that would be. The angels would swoop in and lift you up. How prideful would that be? Jesus was tempted in his body, turn these stones into bread. Jesus was tempted in the spirit, fall down, he says, and worship me. Jesus was tempted in his soul, jump off from the pinnacle. Misuse your spiritual power. You know that Jesus never ever used his spiritual power on himself. He kept that for others. He wasn't a show-off. He kept that power, that latent power within him to deliver and to heal and to set free but not for himself, not to turn stones into bread, not to jump off pinnacles. And so there's a great power in temptation. The enemy knows how to use it. Then there's the power of accusation. We mentioned just briefly this morning about, in another context, about Job in chapter 1 and how whenever the devil comes before the Lord and he says, have you considered my servant Job? And you remember what the enemy says? Well, of course, basically he had considered him, but I mean, you have set a big hedge of protection around him. You know, and you, you have blessed all that he has. And, and, you know, 
No wonder he loves you. No wonder he serves you. I mean, who wouldn't? But as soon as you take that away, he'll curse you to your face. There's an accusation. He started to accuse Job. He'll curse you to your face. And of course he didn't. He said that twice. Skin for skin, all that a man will give for his skin. He'll save his own neck when it comes to it. And he'll curse you to your face. Power of accusation. Remember how that the and Zechariah, how that the Joshua, the high priest, how that he was standing there, and the evil one was standing to accuse him before God, to oppose him, it actually says, and how the angel of the Lord came and took Joshua, the priest, away, and he gave him new garments, white garments. In other words, he cleansed him and he touched his lips and cleansed him and gave him new garments, made him clean so there could be no accusation against him. The devil loves to accuse. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12. And he loves to accuse. He loves to accuse us to God and he loves to accuse God to us. He loves to accuse us to each other very easy to accuse, isn't it? It's a very powerful weapon he's got. And then there's the power of discouragement. He wants you to feel small and useless and hopeless and inferior, insignificant and powerless. Discouragement. So easy can happen, so easily happens, doesn't it? You're going along great and you're doing wonderfully well and suddenly you get discouraged. See it, Spurgeon, arguably the greatest preacher that Britain ever produced the sermon still goes around the world today. Here is a man who, when he was only in his 20, was preaching to thousands. He had the mega church in the 1800s. No microphones and no organs and nothing. He had such a command and such a great voice. And there was thousands when just a young man came to hear him. He was the talk of the whole country. Powerful preacher. Thousands and thousands of sermons. And yet he says there was times he got so discouraged he could hardly even climb into the pulpit. There's times he felt so down within himself. There's times he says he was even depressed. Like a black dog had come after him. And he was so discouraged with his life and with his ministry. And yet there was thousands and thousands coming to hear him preach. His tabernacle was filled every Sunday to capacity for years. And yet there was times, he said, he was so discouraged. He, he, he wrote a little article to his students, and he called them the preacher's fainting fits. That was his quaint way of saying it, his preacher's fainting fits. And he told them, there's going to be times you'll have fainting fits. You'll get so discouraged and down, you'll think it's hardly worthwhile to go on because of the enemy coming against his mind and against his, what he felt. And we know the power of discouragement, don't we? But isn't it great when somebody encourages you? Isn't it great when somebody just gives you that word that you need or that pat on the back that you need or that wee word in your ear that just lifts you up and keeps you going on? And then in this story, it says he guards his own palace or his own house. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace or his own house, his goods are in peace. Satan hates to lose 
any of his household. He hates it when the kingdom of God encroaches on his territory. He hates the fact tonight that he has lost you and countless others to the kingdom of God. He hates that with a passion. You are a trophy of God's grace. And he tries to do everything and anything to keep men and women from coming into the kingdom of God, from moving from darkness to light, from death to life. But thank God we made that move. Thank God for that day or that night, maybe as a child, maybe as a fully grown adult, that you decided for Jesus. And you left that kingdom and joined this kingdom. He's no longer your master. Christ is your master. The Bible says in Hebrews 3 that Christ, He is faithful over His household. Enemy tries to keep people with lies and deception. Jesus keeps us with love and grace and mercy and compassion and faith and power. I know whose household I would rather belong to. Amen? So that's the strong man. But then Jesus said in verse 22, but when a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, Behold, I saw Satan as lightning falling from the sky. First John 3 and 8, John says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. <laughs> Hebrews 2.14, that through death Christ might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Second Thessalonians 2.8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It's easy to see in the Scriptures who the stronger one is here, isn't it? All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Jesus said, glory to God. That's why we can say, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Because the stronger one is within us. That's why James could say, James 4 and 7, submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because the stronger one is in us. You say, well, how come we're defeated all the time? Because we forget the stronger ones in us. We do not appropriate and realize half the time the power and the authority and the strength that we have got in Christ. If we did, we wouldn't be defeated as many times sometimes as we are because we're in Christ and He is the stronger one. And He overcame the strong man Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death itself. Christ is the one today who has the keys of death and hell, not the devil. Christ has got them. If the devil had the keys of death and hell today, we'd be there. Yeah. 
But he hasn't. Christ has got them. Can you imagine a bleeding lamb overcame a roaring lion? <laughs> imagine that picture. A bleeding lamb overcame a roaring lion. You'd think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't it? In the natural, it would be, but not in the spiritual. Christ, the bleeding lamb, overcame the enemy, the roaring lion. But if I, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. wonder what finger he meant. I think it was a little finger. I think that was all he needed. If I cast out by the finger of God. You know, that's an interesting statement that. You find that away over in Exodus chapter 8. Well, actually, in Exodus 7 and 8. Do you remember how that God had commanded Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? In Exodus 7, verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron. So in other words, when you go and tell him to let my people go, he's going to want to know, well, what authority have you got to say that to me? Show me a miracle. Show me your power. Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you should say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. Now why did you think Pharaoh would ask to see their power? Well, it gives us the answer in a second here because he had seen a lot of power. Listen to this. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. Now, there's some power, isn't it? Don't tell me the enemy doesn't have any power because you just see it right there. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So there's the stronger man. Aaron's rods swallowed up their rods. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and when, you, and when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river bank to meet him, and the rod which has turned to a servant you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear, thus saith the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe, will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch it out. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. 
And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood, and the fish that were in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the waters of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. <laughs> Talk about self-inflicted punishment. They did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them. But then if you were to go on, and we'll not read all of this, but if you were to go on into chapter 8, the next plague was frogs. And suddenly there was frogs everywhere. They were coming out of the swamps, they were coming out of the rivers, they were coming out of the trees, they were coming out of the bushes. And if you were to read on verse 7 of chapter 8, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. But if you were to read on, chapter 8, verse 16, this is the last. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and on beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. There's a limit to the power of the enemy. Aren't you glad for that? There's a limit to the power of the strong man, but there's no limit to the power of the stronger man. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. <laughs> they had to admit, this is the finger of God. God's power is greater. This is, this is none other than the finger of God. He overcame the strong man and took from him all his armor in which he trusted. He stripped him of his armor for us. He broke his power for us. He took the keys of death and hell for us. Like I said this morning in that other message, Satan has no longer any legal jurisdiction over the child of God. You say, hold on a minute, but David, how come he still comes against us with these weapons that they stripped from them. It's because we don't know and we allow. But if we realized his power is broken and his weapons are stripped, then he can't overcome us and he can't overtake us. Amen? Amen. He divides his spoils. He says he over come him, and he took off all the armor in which he trusted. In Colossians chapter 2, this is a lovely verse. Colossians chapter 2, Paul here is talking about what Christ has done on the cross for us. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, 
He has taken it out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. You should underline that in your Bible. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Get the picture in your mind. In the ancient days, when a king went out to war and he overcame his enemies, he would bring many prisoners back with him. The victorious king would come into his city, people would be standing waiting, they'd be cheering, and he would ride into the city. Behind him would be his army, and behind them there'd be many captives and the spoils of war, the weapons of war that they took from their enemies. And he would bring them in, and right at the end would be the opposing king who would be stripped, who would be ashamed, who would be cowering, who would be mangled and chained. And the city would be clapping and cheering the victorious king. When Jesus on the cross, defeated Satan. It was such a rout. It was such a defeat. He made a show of him openly. All heaven rejoiced and was glad that the king of all kings had overcome the evil one and had stripped him and had broken his power over men. But we got to realize that. We have got to know that for this to be effective. And he divides his spoils, it says. He divides his spoils. Christ wants to give back to man everything that Satan has stolen from him. And Satan has stolen a lot from mankind. Mankind who was made in the very image of God. He's made to be a person of dignity. And Satan has took many a man, many a woman, he's taken their dignity. Remember Bartimaeus, the beggar, when Jesus was passing through Jericho, and how when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus passing by, remember how he ran and shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But you remember what he did? He threw off that outer cloak, that old dirty filthy garment that he sat and bagged with every day for years, maybe almost all of his life, sitting there. And suddenly, he hears Jesus is coming, and he throws it off. And the Lord gave him back his sight. And by giving him back his sight and giving him back his life, he gave him back his dignity. He would never have to bag again. He'd never have to sit there day in, day out in that filthy state He'd never be a beggar again. He'd be a man who would look after himself and maybe his family. And he got his dignity back. Remember the leper? How that Jesus touched him? Nobody would touch a leper. What a, a terrible, horrible disease. We talked about it a couple of Sundays ago. How it stigmatized and ostracized and how that you were put out of the community and put out of the village and put out of your family and put isolated. 
What an awful indignity for it to happen to any human being. And yet Jesus came and he touched the leper and he cleansed the leper. And he gave him back his dignity. Remember the woman taken in adultery? And how that the Bible says that she was caught in the very act. Those scribes and Pharisees knew fine well what was going on. And they went at the right time, the appropriate moment, and they caught her in the act, and they dragged her out of her house, and they dragged her through the streets of Jerusalem, pulled her into the temple where Jesus was, and flung her at Jesus' feet in front of hundreds of people who would be standing there. What an indignity. Imagine being exposed before everybody and how that Jesus, without going into the detail, remember how he stooped down and he wrote on the ground, and one by one by one, the accusers left. Where are your accusers? No man accuse me, Lord, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I don't know all the reasons why he wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote on the ground, but I do know this, and I, I believe this. Whenever they dragged that woman before Jesus, every eye was on her. Every eye was on that poor woman. How embarrassing, how humiliating. And what did Jesus do? He immediately stooped down. And I think at that moment he stooped down, I think every eye was on him. Every eye got off her and every eye got on to him to see what he was going to do and what he was going to say. And for those moments, nobody was watching her, they were watching him. And in those moments, whatever he did, he gave her back her dignity. She left the temple that day different than she came in. She was dragged in, she walked out. Because Jesus had set her free. He had forgiven her. Give her back her dignity. Christ wants to give men and women back their dignity. Wants to give them their peace of mind. Some people are tormented. The man of Gadara was tormented. A legion of dark forces invaded his life. It put him out of his mind. Bible says that he lived among the tombs and he ran naked among the tombs and he cut himself with sharp stones and he cried night and day and the village people would come out and they'd ambush him and put chains on him and he'd break them like elastic bands and they were frightened of him. But Jesus came just to that one man and he set him free. The Bible says he was found sitting, clothed and in his right mind. Of all the things the Scriptures could record it, I think that one thing is lovely that he was found clothed. Clothed. Whether Jesus told the disciples to go and get that man a suit, I don't know. But what I do know was the naked man was clothed. He got his dignity back. He was no longer out of his mind. He was no longer running about. He was seated. He was at peace. And he was beautifully clothed. And that's what the Lord wants to do with men and women. There's so many scriptures you could give, but time's going. He wants to give man back his destiny. 
Man was made for greater things, for higher purposes, for rulership, for dominion, for worship, for service, for relationship with his creator, for fellowship with Christ. There's so much that Christ has got for us in our destiny. His plan for our lives. And the enemy has stolen a lot of that from people. Christ wants to give it back. He wants you to know your purpose in life. He wants every man to find his purpose in life. And it will be found in Christ. That's the true purpose, isn't it? Yes, Satan is a strong man. But thank God for the stronger man tonight. Glory to God. <laughs> ah, aren't you glad you're saved tonight? This world is getting more evil, more wicked as the days go on. Sometimes you watch the news and you shake your head and say, how worse can it get? It's going to get a lot worse. But when you give your life to Christ, what a future we've got. What a present we've got. But what a future we've got. What an eternity we've got. Because the stronger man is holding us in his hand. And no man, he says, shall pluck you out of my hand. What a strong grip he's got in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you that not only are you our wonderful Savior, but you are the strong man tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you hold us in the palm of your hands. Lord, your eye is over the righteous, your ear is open unto your cry. So we bless you tonight that we belong to your family. We're your inheritance. We thank you tonight, Lord, that you're the great one, the King of all kings. And we bless you this evening that we love you, that we serve you, that you saved us and redeemed us. You took us from the clutches of the evil one. You brought us from darkness to light, from death to life. And we bless you for that tonight. So Lord, as we leave here this Sunday, Lord, as we go into our working week this week, we pray, Lord, that we'll realize our authority, the dominion that you have given to each of us, Lord, over the enemy. And Lord, he won't kick us around anymore. But we thank you, Lord, for your strength and your grace and your power and your love and your mercy. We bless you for that every day. So Lord, bless this family here today, the family of God, Lord, as they go out into this week, Lord, as some goes on holidays and some's just back, we pray for them to be refreshed, body, mind, and spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.